What's good, y'all? So while we were putting this week's episode to bed, it was announced that there was a verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. And we know that a lot of y'all turned to us in moments like these. And we wanted to point you to some of our previous coverage. Last year, we published an episode titled A Decade of Watching Black People Die. We published it not long after George Floyd's killing at the hands of Officer Derek Chauvin became national news. We were trying to make sense of this story, which, you know, is its own singular tragedy and yet is part of this very familiar pattern. Because, you know, George Floyd's killing at the hands of the police wasn't even the first story like that from the Twin Cities that was captured on video that we covered on Code Switch. In 2016, we did an episode called 46 Stops in which we revisited the many, many, many times that Philando Castile was pulled over by the police while he was driving until the final fatal encounter in which an officer killed him. We wanted to point you to those episodes, which remain sadly as relevant as ever. But one last thing, the Chauvin trial sort of carries with it the weight of all the stories like it that have come before, all the frustrations, all the anger from those cases. And, you know... While we're all trying to process this verdict, it's important to remember that there's no way any single ruling can satisfy all of that. A criminal conviction isn't the start of anything regarding police reform or even reimagining what public safety and justice might look like. Those are larger questions and far beyond the scope of what can be addressed by the facts of or the ruling in any single criminal case. And we promise we'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible in the future. All right, on to the show. You are listening to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. Shireen is out this week. So you might remember in our last episode, we talked to the historian Marsha Chatlin, and she sketched out this under-examined relationship between the explosion of McDonald's in, you know, every hood in the United States, particularly Black-owned McDonald's, and the civil unrest of the 1960s. She said that for a lot of Black folks, you know, of all different ideologies, there was this idea that more Black business ownership was a way for Black people to set their own course. The strategy that Black people should pursue is one of economic power and that that collective economic power will eventually lead to the possibility of full citizenship. This idea is Black capitalism. And she explained that McDonald's and fast food franchising was just like one way to do that. But on this week's episode, we're going to talk about one of the most audacious and controversial experiments in Black capitalism. Let's just go back to the 1970s. We're making a fresh start at Soul City. Soul City, a brand new community about a third the size of Manhattan. It would have had tens of thousands of residents, an airport, factories, a bustling city center. We have 3,500 acres of beautiful land with more than 400 acres set aside for industrial development. Homes straight out of the Brady Bunch. But all this would be built by black business and enterprise, a capital for black capitalism as the New Yorker called it. People of all ages, races, and religions can work together, play together, and learn together. Soul City, a fresh start. And this was all the lifelong dream of a man named Floyd McKissick. 
He wanted to create a space where black people would call the shots and would control the levers of power. That's Thomas Healy, and he's the author of a new book called Soul City, Race, Equality, and the Lost Dream of an American Utopia. There really weren't spaces like that, or at least um, there weren't very many, and none at the scale of a city. And McKissick had come to believe, after 20 years of fighting for integration, that what was even more important was economic equality. This is what we got to do now. We really got to get down and build a nation for black people. That's McKissick speaking to the Black Journal in a 1970 TV segment while Soul City was still in development. And you cannot have a nation without an economy. If someone else controls your economy, you are a colony. And black people in the United States, no matter what part of the United States they're in, they're still in ghettos, and ghettos are colonies because the economy is controlled by other forces. And the thing is, Soul City almost happened. He almost pulled it off. For a little while, it had the backing of some of the most powerful people in the United States. It was widely covered and debated in the news. And yet today, very few people have heard of it. So Thomas Healy went to Soul City while he was researching his book. Because Soul City is still around, sort of. It's on this big patch of land in Warren County, North Carolina, about an hour or so from Raleigh. And Thomas went to the one neighborhood in Soul City that was ever finished. They had a boarded-up shopping center. There was grass and weeds poking through the old neglected roads. And some of those Brady Bunch homes are still there, and a few people live in them. But for the most part, Soul City is a ghost town. You can find it on Google, but Soul City doesn't exist on any official maps. You know, it's a shame that McKissick is not better known and that Soul City is not better known. It really has been forgotten. What's weird is that Floyd McKissick, who got really close to realizing Soul City, was one of the major figures of the freedom movement. And the fact that he's been mostly forgotten, Healy says, has a lot to do with what happened with Soul City. I think a lot of people view Soul City as a failure, and, you know, that's how they think about McKissick. I think that's part of why his legacy has diminished. I also think that there was a lot of misunderstanding about the project, about what he was trying to achieve. All right, so in order to really understand what Soul City was, we first have to look at the person who planned it. Floyd McKissick was born in 1922 in the mountains of Asheville in North Carolina. And even though Asheville at the time was less rigorously segregated than other parts of the South, the white people he encountered always put him in his place. In an autobiography that he began but wasn't able to finish, he described himself feeling like a black boy in a white land. And, you know, I think that he wanted to create a place where he wouldn't feel like a stranger, where he would feel at home and welcome. McKissick went on a fight in Europe during World War II. He won a Purple Heart. And he liked to say that it was there, while he was watching French planners rebuild these towns that were destroyed by bombing and shelling, that the very first seeds of Soul City took root. His unit was helping. They were clearing rubble and, you know, helping to build. And he had this idea that if people in Europe could rebuild their cities, why couldn't Black people in America build new cities from scratch? When Floyd McKissick got back to the U.S., he went to Morehouse, he got married, he had kids, he settled down. Oh, I guess, I mean, he didn't really settle down because he kind of threw himself into troublemaking for the freedom struggle. He got his law degree, and he became the de facto lawyer for the students in Greensboro, North Carolina, who were holding those sit-ins at, like, Woolworth counters. He went around the state teaching young people how to organize nonviolent direct action. 
Healy says that McKissick was, you know, charismatic, he was well-connected, media-savvy, and he had this reputation of not just being someone who liked to give speeches, but someone who liked to just be on the ground, getting his hands dirty with the dirty work of organizing. By the 1960s, Floyd McKissick was the head of the Congress of Racial Equality. CORE was one of the biggest and most influential civil rights groups in the country, and that made McKissick one of the most famous civil rights leaders in the United States. Here he is on Meet the Press in 1966 on a panel that also included Martin Luther King Jr. and Stokely Carmichael. Mr. McKissick, what do you think? Do you think things are getting better or worse? I'm of the opinion that things have not progressed tremendously for the masses of the people. McKissick had long been a proponent of direct action, but over the course of the 60s, his politics started to shift. Healy describes one fateful night in Mississippi. McKissick was leading a march with thousands of other people. He was standing on top of a big tractor trailer when the police started beating marchers with clubs and tear gas. One canister of tear gas hit McKissick and knocked him off the top of that truck. He landed on his back and he was in blinding pain. And Thomas Healy said that incident marked a turning point for McKissick. He and all the people fighting for integration, they were getting the crap kicked out of them. They were being killed. They were facing stiff opposition in the courts. Even white liberals and members of the press who were ostensibly sympathetic to the movement often criticized it for being too militant or moving too quickly. McKissick started to wonder, like, is the fight for integration worth all this, all these lives, all this bloodshed? And so he turned away from the civil rights aims of integration. Healy said McKissick became a much louder proponent of black power. He wanted black political representation, improved black self-image, black leadership, and the enforcement of federal civil rights laws. But he believed you couldn't have any of those things if black people didn't have their own wealth or economic muscle. He wanted an empowered black capitalism. That was really the goal, you know? How do we find a way for black people to share in the wealth of America and and to share in the wealth that's generated in the capitalist system. And McKissick believed that, I think he thought you had a better chance of working within that system than trying to overturn that system. Floyd McKissick would often say in speeches, if a black man has no bread in his pocket, the solution to his problem is not integration, it's to go get some bread. It was a feeling that was very much in line with the moment because the black power movement shifted the focus from integration to the problems in black neighborhoods and, you know, the issues of poverty and lack of adequate housing and lack of economic opportunity. And, you know, McKissick was really sort of leading that. He was one of the figures who really spoke strongly about, you know, the importance of economic equality to the black freedom struggle. In 1968, in the weeks after Martin Luther King was killed, Cities across the country were on fire, and Floyd McKissick floated to the other members of CORE, his lifelong dream. A city where black folks called the shots, where black folks could thrive, and that could allow black folks to make their own economic opportunities, to make their own way, to sustain themselves with their own businesses and investment and enterprises. Now, he said, now was the time for Soul City. Thomas Healy said McKissick was pulling from two old, distinctly American ideas about how to create a community. The first idea was the Black Town. Soul City grew out of a long tradition of Black people in the United States 
trying to create communities of solidarity and refuge, you know, havens from white oppression. Um, I mean, this goes back to the moment that enslaved Africans were brought to America. And after the Civil War, after Reconstruction was ended, there was a new movement to create new towns in Kansas and in Oklahoma. And the second tradition was the utopia. I think when we use the word utopia, we conjure up all sorts of visions that are almost science fiction, you know? You imagine these new gleaming worlds and these kind of perfect communities and everything will be right, we'll fix all the problems, you know, we'll achieve spiritual transcendence, we'll create lemonade seas, whatever. I mean, there's this whole kind of utopian tradition, you know, where people are trying to achieve things that are almost fantastical. Religious movements, economic movements, so many people in the United States have tried to create new communities, new ways of being, out of whole cloth. Healy says McKissick wanted to create a place where the American dream was available to Black people like him. It was utopian in the sense that he was trying to create a place that didn't exist and he was trying to start over on a blank slate. Uh, and a lot of people in court thought, He was out of his mind. They were like, bruh, CORE is barely hanging on financially. The freedom movement was fraying. It's losing support. Martin Luther King was just killed. Morale is low. And now you want us to finance and build a whole last city from the ground up in the middle of nowhere? Some other people in CORE just felt that the whole scheme was too fundamentally conservative. Like, why would we want more capitalism? Isn't capitalism part of the problem? If Soul City was going to happen, they told him CORE wasn't going to be a part of it. And so Floyd McKissick deflated, resigned from CORE. He was going to go it alone. He already knew what he wanted to build, where he wanted to build it, and who he wanted to build it for. To pull it off, though, he would need allies. He would need investors. The broader public was skeptical, though. The press characterized the whole thing as a separatist boondoggle. Even the people sympathetic to McKissick wondered how he could make it happen. And so McKissick struck a deal with one of black capitalism's most prominent and most unlikely mainstream proponents. When a nation with the greatest tradition of the rule of law is torn apart by lawlessness, when a nation which has been a symbol of equality of opportunity is torn apart by racial strife, then I say it's time for new leadership in the United States of America. You guessed it, y'all. It's your boy, Richard M. Nixon. McKissick was under surveillance by the FBI. He and Stokely Carmichael were the leaders of black power for a period in the late 1960s. And all of a sudden, you have this alliance between McKissick and Nixon, who had won the presidency running on this appealing to white racism in order to win. So yeah, this is a really strange alliance. But that's after the break. Stay with us. The following message comes from NPR sponsor Yogi Tea. Soothe your stomach with a zesty warming cup of Yogi Mango Ginger Tea, blended with ginger and Ayurvedic warming spices like cinnamon and cardamom. Reach for this delightfully spiced herbal tea whenever your tummy needs a little taming. Find your flow with Yogi Tea. In stressful times, you want to spend your time checking out not just what's best, but what's best for you. We know you care about what you watch, what you read, and what you listen to. NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast is with you five days a week to make sure that time is well spent. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Gene, just Gene this week, Code Switch. 
Floyd McKissick had some real strong ideas about how he wanted Soul City to look. He was trying to take advantage of new ideas in terms of planning a city. Here's Thomas Healy, the author of Soul City. All of the electrical uh, lines were going to be buried underground. The road system was designed to sort of funnel traffic efficiently. Because before we dug our first ditch or laid our first brick at Soul City, we laid plans for a freestanding city of 40,000 people. A city with the cultural and job opportunities of an urban environment. And at the same time, the living advantages of a rural environment. Bike paths and walking paths through woods. So it was going to be kind of, you know, a combination of urban and pastoral. There's plenty to enjoy at Seoul City, too. We have tennis courts, basketball courts, a swimming pool, two lakes, parks, and wilderness. But to pull this off, Floyd McKissick was going to have to wear a lot of hats. He was going to need to be an urban planner, which wasn't really his thing. He was going to have to be Seoul City's pitch man. He was going to sell it to new residents and new businesses. But before all that, he was going to need some money. Well, our number one problem is finance. Uh, That is, we got to bring together the federal government, funds from the federal government, funds from the state government. Banks were skeptical, like... They were supposed to give money to a dude who wasn't a developer to raise a whole city in the middle of some empty tobacco fields? Thomas Haley said reaching out to the government, though, posed all sorts of philosophical dilemmas for Floyd McKissick. The aim of Soul City, remember, was to promote black self-determination and self-sufficiency with black businesses. Getting tied up with Washington, D.C. would mean that Soul City would be giving up some of its autonomy to white bureaucrats. That was anathema to McKissick, but he was also a pragmatist. Thomas says McKissick hoped the federal money could get Soul City off the ground enough so that it would eventually have enough black economic wind under its wings to fly on its own. But Thomas Haley told me the idea of black capital itself introduced all sorts of complications to the planning of Soul City. Like, okay, Floyd McKissick wanted to woo large corporations to the town to set up factories or hubs, but he also wanted Soul citizens to be able to acquire wealth through ownership of the means of production, like the machines and the factories and the stores. You know, the one thing McKissick hadn't really worked out is how he was going to sell that to General Motors. <laughs> you know, how do you how do you get General Motors to build a factory in your new city and then tell General Motors, oh, and by the way, the workers are going to own this factory. You're not going to own it. Um, that, that was not an easy sell. And aside from that, there was the whole question of the legality of it all. There were already a lot of people who were suspicious of the idea. Like, wouldn't a black town run afoul of these brand new things we're calling fair housing laws? Some people like Sam Irvin, North Carolina senator at the time, said if the federal government stepped in to back a private enterprise like Soul City, what was keeping them from doing the same with whites-only real estate projects? Listener, I know you're thinking it too. <laughs> Wasn't that what the government had already been doing for decades? But I digress. McKissick would put on a salesman hat and say, look, Soul City would be open to everyone, to all kinds of businesses, but it would prioritize the creation of black wealth. To him, none of this was in conflict. And so Floyd McKissick would go on to press his case with Richard M. Nixon, the president of the United States. Nixon, for his part, had the idea of black capitalism. At one point, he called it the real black power, throwing a speech before black audiences. We talked about this moment a bunch of times on Code Switch. In our episodes about black Republicans, we talked about how Nixon believed that this 
will be a way to woo Black voters back to the GOP. And as Marsha Chatlin explained in our last episode, by embracing Black capitalism, Nixon could also then sidestep more active federal involvement in all these issues of racial justice that had dominated the 1960s. So they had wildly different reasons for getting there, but both Floyd McKissick and Richard Nixon agreed on this broad point. The sooner that Black people had their own thriving businesses, their own wealth, the sooner they wouldn't have to press their case to Washington. And this was something of a long shot. Floyd McKissick had been critical of Richard Nixon in 1968, back when Nixon was campaigning on law and order and talking about the silent majority, you know, the Americans who weren't happy with all the social change that the 1960s had wrought. McKissick saw that as a racist dog whistle. But through some back-channeling and through a black aide in the White House, Nixon would eventually throw his support and millions of dollars in grants and federal loan guarantees behind Seoul City. For his part, McKissick switched parties, and he became one of the most prominent black Republicans in the United States. Before the 1972 election, uh, McKissick reached out to some friends and proposed that they join together in an effort to get out the black vote for Nixon. And Nixon welcomed him. They had gotten so chummy that the night before Nixon was inaugurated for his second term, Healy says Nixon invited Floyd McKissick and his wife Evelyn to join him for a concert at the Kennedy Center. So they shared a box with the president because that's how grateful Nixon was for McKissick's efforts on his behalf. There was a, an element of pragmatism and expediency in McKissick's alliance with Nixon. No doubt about that. But a lot of other people from the civil rights movement, a lot of black people in general, actually, were watching all this and started looking at McKissick this civil rights organizer turned black Republican as a sellout. McKissick was under surveillance by the FBI. You know, he and Stokely Carmichael were the leaders of black power for a period in the late 1960s. Uh, And all of a sudden, you have this alliance between McKissick and Nixon. That federal backing was the shot in the arm that Soul City needed. This big patch of land was suddenly busy with construction workers, with planners, the first sole citizens had even started moving in, living in trailers while the roads and buildings and factories were being put together. And that government backing meant press coverage of Soul City started to become more glowing. A New York Times article lauded the building of the first 90 homes and a giant complex that would have over 50,000 square feet of manufacturing and office space. McKissick bragged in that story about how diverse and multiracial the applicants were for these new Soul City jobs. But he also underlined what Soul City was for. He said, quote, There are too many people who still have that image of the black man on the corner with his fist in the air and nothing in his head or in his pocket. Soul City will establish the principle of black competence. Okay, so Soul City was really happening. It almost happened, right? But we know that it is basically a ghost town today. So what went down between then and now? Two words or one name, Jesse Helms. Jesse Helms. I've not had one black to write to me saying that he wanted forced busing this child. We have had many blacks to write to us. Say, Senator, I didn't vote for you, but you're right about this. I'd prefer my child to walk to school. The senator from North Carolina was an unalloyed segregationist. He staked out a long, long record of opposition to civil rights. He had been a Democrat like most white Southerners and like most white Southern voters switched parties as the Democrats became the party of civil rights in the 1960s. 
So now Jesse Helms and Floyd McKissick are both North Carolinians in the same party. And so Floyd McKissick reaches out to Jesse Helms when he wins and says that he knows that they have some differences, but there are many things they can work together on, including Soul City. Jesse Helms was like, nah. Jesse Helms writes back and says that at the earliest possible moment, he's going to launch a federal investigation into how federal money is being used at Soul City. Um, And that pretty much set the tone for their relationship going forward. Pretty soon, there was a battalion of federal auditors in Soul City, alongside the contractors and, you know, curious prospective residents and business types. The auditors were trying to figure out just how McKissick was spending this money he was getting from the federal government and whether he was up to some financial chicanery. Every time he was in Washington, he would call up Helms's office and, you know, try to schedule a meeting because he knew he needed his support. But Helms would never meet with him. And the one time that they did run into each other in the Capitol, McKissick went up to Helms and Helms told him, he said, uh, Floyd, I'm going to kill Soul City. But Thomas Haley said it wasn't just the Jesse Helmses of the world who tried to torpedo Soul City. You know, it was also just a kind of unwillingness among a lot of whites who considered themselves liberal and who considered themselves allies of the civil rights movement, uh, their unwillingness to recognize that what McKissick was saying black people needed was self-determination and autonomy. One example was a white journalist named Claude Sitton. Sitton had made his name as a reporter for the New York Times during the civil rights movement, and he was renowned and respected among black organizers. By the time Soul City was happening in the early 1970s, though, Sitton was running the Raleigh News and Observer, the biggest newspaper in North Carolina. Sitton still saw himself as sympathetic to the civil rights movement. But he was opposed to Soul City. He perceived it as being all black. He thought that McKissick's claims to the contrary were just a ruse to attract federal funding. Sitton thought that the whole foundational logic of the town flew in the face of this idea of integration. And this is the thing that really irritated Floyd McKissick because he heard it a lot. He said to one reporter, quote, everybody thinks of integration on white people's terms. Integration is fine when it's 80 percent white and 20 percent black. Nobody can conceive of integration where the blacks constitute 80 percent and the whites constitute 20 percent. Another time he told a reporter, quote, liberals are all hung up on integration or segregation. This is neither integration nor segregation, but letting black people do what they damn please and go where they please. Claude Sitton was not buying that, and he threw the weight of his paper behind disparaging Soul City. One editorial after another, amplifying, you know, these inaccurate claims of of mismanagement. Uh, You know, they ran these editorial cartoons, you know, depicting McKissick in a kind of caricatured way and, you know, showing government officials throwing money, sacks of money out the window to support Soul City. The cover suggested that McKissick was squirreling away money and, like, living the high life in a fancy house. You know, it was Jesse Helms on the one side and then white liberals like Claude Sitton on the other side, you know. And, and McKissick probably could have overcome the opposition of Jesse Helms and people like Jesse Helms if he had had the support of people like Claude Sitton. But he didn't. All that activity, all that energy, all that buzz, all that construction in Soul City... It only lasted for a quick moment. Public opinion was souring against it. McKissick found himself spending as much time dealing with auditors and accountants and federal bureaucracy as he did in just trying to get Soul City up and running. Oh, and Richard M. Nixon, Soul City's most powerful backer, 
resign in disgrace after Watergate. By the end of the 1970s, the whole project had lost its steam. Five years after the federal government promised to give McKissick millions in loan guarantees, they were pulling the plug. Without financial support from the federal government, there was no way McKissick was going to be able to attract industry. And McKissick fought that for a while, but he allowed the federal government to foreclose. He was allowed to keep uh, some property and was given a little bit of money to help pay off some debts. Uh, And that's it. The government took ownership of the land, and some sole citizens stayed behind and formed a kind of homeowners association. The federal government allowed them to keep staying there, but there was barely any money for upkeep, let alone to keep the dream of Soul City alive. And so in the decades since, that whole episode, this whole would-be black town, has been mostly forgotten. I mean, I don't think the streets have been paved since they were initially laid almost 50 years ago. So they're all cracked and crumbling. And, you know, the saddest thing is that this factory that he built to attract industry was ultimately converted into a prison or into a prison factory, um, which is, I think, you know, the most tragic kind of symbolism. Thomas said, this town that was supposed to be a site for an audacious experiment of Black liberation is now mainly known, if it's known at all, as a place where Black people are behind bars. There are, you know, a handful or more than a handful of of early residents, but a lot of the people who live there are people who moved in later. The original residents, I think they feel a mixture of pride and, and a mixture of real sadness and loss. It's, you know, it's sometimes hard for them to talk about Soul City. I mean, they want to talk about it because it was such an important part of their lives and because they believed in it. But there's a ton of heartache. Thomas said after the government shut Soul City down, McKissick and his wife stayed behind in the house that he built. They raised their kids there. One of his sons became a state senator in North Carolina. One of his daughters is a professor at a nearby HBCU. She still lives in Soul City today. Floyd McKissick never gave up his dream, though. Healy said he held out hope that someone would come along and help him finish what he started. He died in the spring of 1991 in his home in Soul City, looking out a window at that land. And that's where he's buried. He and his wife, they're both buried in the yard of the home that they built in Soul City. Soul City, McKissick's dream. Here he is again in 1970. I think it's time that we quit chasing whites, quit trying to be like whites. Thomas Haley said, contrary to the reports in the local press, Floyd McKissick's home in Soul City wasn't some fancy mansion. He said in any other suburb in the United States, it would just be another house. But he said, that's kind of what McKissick wanted for black people. Just a nice house in a place where they felt they belong. This regular, radical thing. Thomas Healy is the author of Soul City, Race, Equality, and the American Dream. And that is our show. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Jess Kung and Alyssa Jong-Perry with an assist from Lauren Magaki. It was edited by Steve Drummond, and we would be remiss if we did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch squadron. Leah Danella, Kumari Devarajan, Karen Grigsby-Bates, L.A. Johnson, Natalie Escobar, and Summer Thomas. I'm Gene Demby. Shireen is back next week. Be easier. 
With the film Judas and the Black Messiah nominated for six Academy Awards, the Black Panther Party is being talked about again. But what were they all about? Where did they come from? And why are they still so misunderstood? The story of the real Black Panthers. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR.